Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed Hassan. I'm a little bit fanboying today. I have Paul Shari, the Vice President and Director of Studies at CNAS. He's an award-winning author of his recent book, Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Uh, his first book, Army of None, amazing. Autonomous Weapons and Future of War, won the 2019 Kobe Award. I was named on Bill Gates' top five books of 2018 and named The Economist one of the top five books to understand modern warfare. So for people that follow the podcast, I think that would be an awesome start right into Paul's work. Paul previously worked at the Office of Secretary of Defense, the OSD, where he played a leading role in establishing policies on unmanned autonomous systems and emerging weapons technology. He led the Department of Defense working group that drafted the DOD Directive 3009, establishing the department's policies on autonomy and weapon systems. He also led the DOD efforts to establish policies on intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance programs and direct energy technologies. Paul also was involved in drafting of the policy guidance in the 2012 Defense Strategic Guidance, 2000 Quadrennial Defense Review, and security-level planning guidance. And prior to joining the OSD, he served as a special operations reconnaissance team leader in the Army's 3rd Ranger Battalion and completed multiple tours to Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a graduate of the Army's Airborne Ranger and Sniper Schools and an honor graduate of the Ranger Indoctrination Program. And he has published multiple papers and articles for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Time, Foreign Policy. So you can find them everywhere. And he's also very involved in other government agencies in the U.S. and international ones like NATO and King's College London War Studies Program, which some of our analysts did their MAs. Paul, that's a long intro. I hope you don't mind. And if I butchered something, I'm sorry. Thank you for, for being up. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So why AI? How, how, how did you get to this point? Well, when I finished Army of None, one of the things that struck me was just how rapidly things were moving in the machine learning space. And as I was wrapping up the book, we were seeing more evolutions with AlphaGo and AlphaGo Zero and AlphaZero. I was, I was cramming, trying some of the updates in AI into the footnotes of the book uh, trying to keep it up to date, which is basically impossible because the field was moving so quickly. And so as Army of None was ending, I already knew what the next book had to be about. It had to be about what was, we we're seeing in artificial intelligence. And the way that I envisioned how AI was going to change became get sort of bigger and bigger over time, where autonomous weapons was really the focus of Army of None. And it seemed to me that AI was going to have much bigger focus you know, across all of the military. It was going to change mm -hmm every aspect of military operations, but even be bigger than that. And then AI has the potential to change national power, much like we saw nations rise and fall on the global stage during the Industrial Revolution. And that seemed to me the central story is, how is AI changing global power and peace and security? And it was, it was a big one. I feel like, you know, I was the dog chasing after the car. And I hope readers enjoy the book. I just had an incredible time researching it and writing it over the last five years. I got to travel the world. I got to talk to AI startups. I talked to, talk to you know, Chinese military officers working on artificial intelligence in China. Just a great opportunity. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was wonderful. And I'm excited to be able to share uh, the insights in the book with research with everyone else. So you started off in the U.S. Army as a ranger. How did that, how was that experience or did it play a role in what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So I served in the Army's 3rd Ranger Battalion from 2001 to 2005. So I joined the Army just before 9-11. I mean, actually, was in basic training when 9-11 happened. And my, my biggest fear, to be totally honest with before when I joined, was that I'd spend four years mowing grass at Fort Benning. Uh, and you right. say that is, that is not what happened. So we were very busy. Did my first deployment overseas in Afghanistan in the summer of 2002 when we first secured the country and then went back a number of times since then. And then additionally did a, a year in Iraq during the surge as a civil affairs specialist. And uh, just a fabulous experience, learned a tremendous amount, 
you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for anything. World's really great experience. Started out as a rifleman in the range regiment and then eventually moved to their sniper section and then led a reconnaissance team, which was just, it was awesome. It was like loads of fun. Like it's, you know, it's almost shouldn't, well, it would be, yeah. of course, in other settings illegal to have that much fun. <laughs> so it was a great time. But I think one of the things that it, it gave me in the role I'm in now is a couple of things that are incredibly helpful. One is just a visceral sense of what war is like, the chaos and confusion of warfare, the difficulties for people in understanding what's going on on the ground. I think that's really important when we think about things like artificial intelligence and autonomous weapons that are supposed to be tools that are helping people process information and understand things better. And these tools can be, they're often very powerful. They could seem a little magical. They can often work great in the lab. And then you take them out to the real world and we see all the time that then they fail and break in surprising ways. And the military environment, wartime, is in some ways the harshest possible environment for machines and for people. And so I think, you know, having that experience really is helpful, kind of grounds how I think about technology. And it's worth pointing out that the grunts are like inherently really skeptical of technology. And that, that actually, like, despite the fact that I work on tech issues now, I've now written two books about technology, that is very much in my DNA still. And, you know, this idea of like, if it's not going to work in the harshest conditions, don't give it to me. That's how I felt yeah. when I was a ranger. I know that's how service members feel. And I think that's really important to, to keep in mind just how punishing the military environment is. And then anything, any new widget that we're going to send and give to service members has got to be able to be robust enough to survive in that environment. Yeah, I think that's often missing, right? That bridge between yeah. the, the warfighter and what works in the lab. So I think it's interesting that, I mean, you have both of those experiences. So that's very, I think that makes you good at your job. But I mean, in army of none, I could, I could read that, but that you put your experience into it. So today, what is your, what is your, what is your work like? And, and how does your day look today? Yeah. So in the role I'm currently in, I'm the vice president and director of studies at the Center for a New American Security, very actively engaged in issues across a range of US national security challenges. How can the United States adapt to the various challenges that we're facing as a nation? I'd say front and center for me and our institution is looking at the China challenge, the US competition with China along a number of dimensions, political, economic, military, technological. Obviously, my new book, Four Battlegrounds, digs into the technological component of this competition focused on artificial intelligence in particular. But we've seen increasingly, you know, the the tech and econ components of US-China competition come to the fore in US national security in a really big way that are you know just as important as the military dimensions of competition. And they've often gotten less attention in Washington. And so there's a lot of movement in this space as Washington considers things like export controls on semiconductor technology, for example, to China or economic competition with China. So that's a very active area of research for myself and other researchers on our team here at CNIS as the US government begins to adapt to this competition. Very interesting. And I wonder... I mean, you talked about export control. One of the big things that, that everybody's talking about is supply chains around chip manufacturing or microchips. Yes. yes. And one of the like latest movements was the directive that hit China's like leadership on, on chip manufacturing. Was it that people, I mean, in the media, they were talking about decapitation, but was it that big of an impact? And how have they coped with that? Yeah. So in October, the Biden administration released a new set of export controls on semiconductor manufacturing technology going to China. There were a number of components of controls. They're super complicated. There's a lot of pieces of them. Uh, there is a component, I want to acknowledge, on restricting access to chips themselves, mm -hmm. which is a part of it. But the the bigger part, the one that affects China's domestic semiconductor manufacturing industry, 
which you mentioned, is on the access to the tools and equipment and software that China needs to manufacture their own chips. These controls are absolutely devastating to China's ability to manufacture leading-edge chips. So right now, China is struggling. They are behind on manufacturing computer chips, which, of course, are valuable for everything from artificial intelligence to 5G wireless networks and cars and computers and, and phones. China is competitive at legacy chips and older model chips, but they're not even close to the most advanced chips, what are called the leading edge. And they're working to catch up. And the technology is extremely difficult. China doesn't have indigenous supply chains for access to the equipment that they need for their fabs, their chip fabrication facilities. And in fact, there are three countries in the world that control semiconductor manufacturing equipment technology, the United States, Japan, and the Netherlands. And the three of them control 90% of the global market for this manufacturing equipment. And so those three countries basically get to decide who is able to build the most advanced chips. And in some cases, there's actually one company and therefore one country that controls some key aspects of the technology. So for example, extreme ultraviolet lithography, the method that's used to make the most advanced chips is controlled by one company in the world, the Dutch company ASML. So the Netherlands gets to basically decide who's going to be able to build the most advanced chips in the world. And so this, I mean, the geopolitical competition of hardware is only heating up. It's going to get Mm -hmm. even more intense. The Biden administration laid down the gauntlet in October with these export controls. There have been reports in early 2023 that Japan and the Netherlands have joined US export controls. And that's really critical for these to work because if Japan and the Netherlands don't get on board, the U.S. controls actually will fall apart pretty quickly in the next few years. Now, public details about what exactly the three countries have agreed to have been pretty thin. Um, And so I think it remains to be seen exactly how strict the Japanese and Dutch controls are going to be. Indications are that they're not going to match U.S. controls exactly, although they may not have to in order to be effective. But if they come on board with effectively the same controls for the United States. China's going to have a real challenge on their hands in building a completely indigenous supply chain, and this is going to set them back in a major way. Well, this is something that I didn't know because I'm Dutch, so I know ASML really well. Yeah. And uh, friends that work for that company. So um, I did read that public opinion is pushing to make it as strict as the U.S. restrictions. But then again, you know, China is also a large trading partner for, for, for Japan and for the Netherlands. So, but a very interesting point you made there because this, this also goes towards China and, and the role of Taiwan. Do you think China's relationship with Taiwan and Taiwan's role in, in chip manufacturing would play a role in, in what China will do towards Taiwan? Well, that's a good question. At the core of your question is this idea of the silicon shield, this idea that Taiwan's central place in semiconductor manufacturing might be some defense against a Chinese aggression. Conversely, I suppose one could view it as a reason for China to want to take over Taiwan, although I don't think they, they need another reason. I think the, the political reasons are motivation enough for the Chinese Communist Party leadership. But Taiwan, rather, plays this very central role in the semiconductor industry, 90% of the most advanced chips in the world come from Taiwan. So Taiwan is effectively the Saudi Arabia of computer chips. And that's a real problem when we think about the fact that Taiwan is sitting 100 miles off the coast of China, which is pledged to absorb them by force if necessary. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the geopolitical risks here of having 90% of the world's most advanced chips being concentrated at this very dangerous geopolitical flashpoint, I think are very real. The U.S. has talked about reshoring chip manufacturing to the U.S., which most of the leading edge manufacturing has left the United States. And certainly Intel has has fallen completely off the leading edge. And so the U.S. is interested in doing that. But more broadly, there's a real compelling case to be made for just diversifying some of the most advanced manufacturing out of Taiwan to other places, maybe more in Korea or Japan or Europe in addition to the U.S. 
To what extent that factors into the Chinese Communist Party leadership over Taiwan is, I think, really unclear. I hear a lot of speculation from analysts, you know, one way or the other. It's hard to know what's going on in the mind of Xi Jinping. You know, my suspicion is that at the end of the day, it's probably a marginal difference in terms of how the CCP leadership think about Taiwan. The political motivations for them to want to re- to absorb Taiwan are are overwhelming compared to any other factor. That they don't need additional motivations. And at the end of the day, if they decide that they think they have a military option and they want to use it, that the fact that this will disrupt semiconductor manufacturing is not going to be a deterrent to them either. I mean, the, the global yeah. economic destruction that would come from a U.S.-China war over Taiwan would be massive. And, you know, the the effect on chips would be part of that, but frankly, probably not the biggest aspect of that. I mean, just U.S.-China trade alone is massive. We've seen, we've seen how the world responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the absolutely crushing sanctions that the world has put on Russia and a scenario where the U.S. and China went to war, China invades Taiwan, and then other countries, including the United States, put financial sanctions and export controls on China would be completely devastating to the world economy. So a situation where Xi Jinping decides they want to go for it, they've baked all that into their calculus. They've decided at that point in time that they're willing to suffer these catastrophic economic consequences because it's that important to them. I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, I certainly hope that, that they are deterred because of both the military consequences and the economic and political consequences. Although, of course, there's growing concern in Washington and elsewhere about Chinese aggression towards Taiwan, and and I think for valid reasons. Yeah, brother, you make a great point there. I would like to take a step back and something that, that I mentioned to you earlier. I wanted to talk about the role of soldiers in, in this like hyper war that we're talking about and, right. and trying to keep up with, with, uh, with the development of technology. And you wrote a lot about soldier health and, and the role of physical and cognitive improvement. Could you go into that a little bit? Yeah. Absolutely. Had the opportunity to do a project a few years ago for the U.S. Army looking at soldier protection. And so there's been, of course, tremendous improvements in body armor and the ability to stop bullets has been an absolute game changer in improving soldier protection and survivability. But there's limits to how much you can do with that. Body armor is heavy and covering a person's ceramic armor is not feasible. And so we looked at a whole wide range of other technologies that might be used to enhance soldier protection and performance, whether it's robot dog teammates carrying a soldier's pack or carrying additional weapons or maybe even ballistic shields to, you know, swarms of drones that might hover around a squad and scout out targets to things that might directly enhance the performance of soldiers, whether physically or cognitively. And I think there's a lot of potential here. There's, of course, you know, some difficult, thorny ethical issues surrounding doing things to enhance soldier performance in the military because you have a vulnerable population. And the basic principles around informed consent that you would have in a civilian medical context are going to be very different in the military because there's inherently a coercive dynamic. You know, it's not mm-hmm. soldiers are very familiar with the term that they were voluntold to do something, yeah. <laughs> right? And there really are no. In some ways, there are, there are no volunteers, right? And so, um, that's a, that's a really important dynamic that militaries need to think about. But mm-hmm. can we use tools to protect soldiers better? Whether it's pharmaceuticals or other techniques to improve brain health, to improve cognitive performance. The answer is absolutely yes. And in many ways, as we see tools like artificial intelligence change the cognitive dimensions of war. As we see drones increase the ability for militaries to collect information on the battle space. And then there's an urgent need for human eyeballs processing all of these drone video feeds. And we have intelligence analysts you know, sifting through all this information. 
ways that we might be able to also enhance the human are really important to take a look at. And in fact, in, in many ways, the military lags behind what's happening out in the civilian sector. If you look at just something you relatively simple like study drugs, drugs like Adderall and Ritalin, yeah. widely used in colleges. They're widely used in Silicon Valley. They increase focus and attention. They give people the ability to focus for long periods of time. And they're relatively safe. There can be some side effects, but they're relatively safe and they're well-used drugs and well-understood. Mm-hmm. Are there settings in the military context where that could be valuable to have an intelligence analyst looking at a drone video feed for hours on end to increase their focus mm-hmm. and attention, to have a sniper in a hide site who's got to pay attention under difficult conditions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could potentially be valuable. And, and the military, it's not that the military doesn't use performance-enhancing drugs. They do. They do mm-hmm. it poorly. Mm-hmm. So caffeine is the most widely used performance-enhancing drug on the planet. Lots of people wake up every morning and they drink caffeine in their mechanism of choice, whether it's coffee or tea or, you know, if you're, if you're in the military veteran, maybe energy drinks. Red Bull. Yeah, Red Bull. You know, I, I, I'm not, <laughs> not going to lie. I, I developed a horrific addiction to Red Bull when I was in the military that I, I've not been able to kick. I'll get clean for a few years and then I'm, I'm back on it again. Um, yeah. So, you know, when I was overseas in Iraq, I remember we had the chapels stocked with rippets. Well, that's not great for you either. Now, it's relatively safe, but of course, it can be very disruptive to sleep. And there's mm-hmm. um, ample evidence within the U.S. military about disruptive sleep patterns and basically soldiers abusing, like overusing caffeine and then it disrupting sleep and really not investing enough in sleep. Sleep is probably the best thing that you could do to enhance your cognitive performance. Yeah. That is like the, you know, what is the, what is the one weird trick? It's like sleep. It's just sleep. Mm-hmm. But there are, but there are more effective drugs that have fewer side effects, like modafinil, for example. And in fact, the army has done studies comparing modafinil, amphetamines, and caffeine using helicopter pilots and simulators, keeping them awake for 40 hours at a time, and found that modafinil is more effective and has fewer side effects than caffeine or amphetamines. And yet aspects of the military continue to use amphetamines, which is which is which are worse, like the aviation community. And so like this is a place where actually getting a better awareness of what's going on out in the civilian sector, out in the medical community, in sports, for example. You know, what what's the NFL doing in terms of cognitive and physical performance? They are light years ahead of the military or brain health. And so I think there's a lot of tremendous opportunity for the military to take in some of these lessons from the civilian sector and then apply them again in a different context. And we need to be conscious of some of these risks to service members and make sure that we're we're taking care of service members. But there are ways to use these tools in ways that might help protect people and help save lives. Why do you think there's such a, a resist against it? I think there's a couple reasons. There's like some good reasons and some bad reasons. So the good reason and I think this is part of it, is that there's an awareness within the U.S. military, at least, that there is an ugly history here of things like marching soldiers through, you know, radiation zones after nuclear weapons tests and using soldiers as human subjects. And so the, the military is, is, you know, very conscious of that and very careful about these types of medical issues. I think that's great. That's the good reason. The dumb reason is that there's also an element of the perception that anything that's performance-enhancing is cheating that exists out in the civilian sector, and in many cases is valid, has blood over to the military. So you see this in sports, right, where doping is illegal in sports. Well, the point in sports is to have a level playing field. The point of the military is to be unfair. Yes. Right? I mean, like, we want it to be as unfair as possible. It's not boxing match. You know, so if there's something that's going to give you an advantage, let's look at that. Now, if the answer is that there's risks associated with it, and some of the, you know, doping tools, for example, like blood doping, are quite dangerous, you might say, well, we're not going to use this type of technology. We're not going to use this type of thing to optimize or enhance human performance because the benefits don't outweigh the risks. 
And that's valid. So I just think that this, this perception, which is valid in sports, that using drugs to enhance performance is cheating, again, true in a sporting context, has bled over into the military, into this perception, mm-hmm. well, that's unfair. And an unfair advantage is precisely what we want to have inside the military. Yeah, that, that's one. Like when I read that, I was like, that, I found that so fascinating, especially the, re- the research on modafinil, on how that impacted pilots and, and analysts. So something a little bit different, but I think a lot of people see Ukraine as a test bed. I mean, there has been talks about how AI has been used to process information. We haven't really seen any or the robotics the Russians have been testing in Syria, for example, we haven't really mm-hmm. seen that. But how, how are you looking at that, particularly like how drones and drone swarms are being used? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Certainly, like many defense analysts, I've been looking at the conflict in Ukraine really closely to try to better understand what does that tell us about modern conventional warfare. And of course, the type of war that we're seeing in Ukraine, a conventional conflict between two major nation states is is quite rare. The challenging thing about warfare is that militaries are constantly preparing for war, but wars themselves are quite rare, which is great. But it means that it's a little bit like trying to train a sports team for a game that you play once every 30 years, where the rules are constantly changing, Mm -hmm. cheating is allowed, and the stakes are life and death. It's very, very challenging. And, you know, so we're seeing a lot of theories about what modern warfare might look like playing out, some of them, you know, in, in being confirmed and some of them being denied in Ukraine. To me, the most striking lesson coming out of Ukraine is the importance of human factors in warfare, the importance of will to fight, morale, unit cohesion, leadership, planning. Those are the factors that overwhelmingly dominate in the conflict and then explain the just absolutely abysmal performance of the Russian military. Because on paper, the Russian military looks great. Yeah. They have advanced technology. It's obviously a huge country. It's a huge military. Certainly myself, I think like many defense analysts expected this war to be over a long time ago with Russia succeeding. I would have expected that Russia would have taken Kiev very, very quickly within a few weeks. Obviously, that's not what's panned out. And I think that the, the explanation really comes down to these non-material factors in war, which is a lesson that we're relearning historically. It comes up again and again in history. Napoleon talks about the importance of non-material factors being three to one over material factors in war. That you know, rough rule of thumb seems about right when you look at what's out unfolding inside Ukraine. But it's really hard for analysts to measure. That. You can measure the number of tanks that a country has. You can look at their aircraft and understand via various means, like what the technology is that they have inside this aircraft and what its capabilities are. But trying to measure the pilot's performance or the morale of the troops inside the tank, that's very difficult or almost impossible. And so I think that that to me is the main takeaway. Now, of course, we're seeing new technologies like drones play a role in the warfare uh, that's unfolding in Ukraine. I wouldn't want to overstate the role. So if you took away drones, for example, I don't think that dramatically changes the picture. I don't think that that tilts things one way or the other on either side, but it is proven some interesting theories about the role of drones in warfare. And one of the things that's quite striking is how valuable even the small commercially available systems, the quadcopters and hexcopters, have been for Ukraine. Now, obviously, they're using the larger military-specific drones like the Turkish Bayraktar TB2, which was sort of the the star early in the conflict. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of value in those. But also, there's been this civilian drone air force coming out of really civilian drone operators in Ukraine that are partnering with the military. And drones are being used quite effectively for reconnaissance, finding Russian forces, for target acquisition and spotting for artillery. They're being used for propaganda purposes, you know, drones being used to film attacks, either attacks by drones themselves or via artillery or ground forces. And of course, Ukraine has dominated the information space in the West in terms of getting their message out about the conflict. Russia's right supposed wanted information warfare uh, skills completely non-existent in this conflict. Yeah. Uh, in this conflict, 
So, you know, it's, it's always hard to know how that translates into a different context, in part because the Russian military has performed so badly. So would the drones be this effective against a more capable military? And that's an open question, but I think we can at least see the kinds of things that drones are doing and extrapolate some of the basic lessons to other conflicts, which is, one, drones lower the cost of air power. So, you know, you can you can get aircraft up in the air, a cheap drone for way less expensive than a crude fighter aircraft. They're more accessible to a wider range of actors. This is a lesson we've seen in other conflicts, too, in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Iraq with ISIS's drone air force that they were using against the Iraqis. So this comes up time and again. That's a key, I think, element in which drones began to change the game. They provide persistence. That's, of course, an absolute game changer in terms of their ability to find and identify and then threaten ground forces. That's been the main advantage for the United States in using drones in counterterrorism operations. It's not, as you know, as experienced listeners will know, it's not the weapons on board the drone, even though the drone strikes get all of the attention. It's the ISR coverage, right, that makes drones valuable. Um, yeah. But it's interesting to see that the commercially available systems can be just as valuable here because one of the things that I've heard consistently over the years in the U.S. defense community, and I always thought was wrong, was this assumption that because the U.S. uses drones in this fairly convoluted and sophisticated way, that oh, other actors couldn't use them that way. And I've certainly sat in meetings where experienced military officers who frankly should know better have taken sort of the model of how the U.S. Air Force uses drones, where they're operating them from the states, using satellite connections, this massive intelligence support apparatus behind the drones, very human intensive, analyzing the uh, information coming off of the drones, and said, well, you know, other countries won't be able to do that. They don't have access to satellites. You don't need that. ISIS didn't have access to satellites. They built, they used commercial available tools, mm-hmm. and they were able to be successful in harassing Iraqi forces and, and causing casualties. And you see, you don't need that in Ukraine. Now, fascinatingly, the Ukrainians are actually using commercial satellite tools like Starlink. And yeah. As far as I know, there was one instance that I think is the first instance that occurred where in Ukraine, Ukrainian drone operator was using a commercial available drone and the Starlink system, commercial available satellite to combine them to use a drone to call it an artillery strike. And so, you know, these tools are becoming more accessible. This democratization of technology is very real and it's, it's putting powerful, destructive tools in the hands of an increasing array of actors, whether it's state or non-state actors. The fact that the two biggest producers of the drones that are used in this conflict, Turkey and Iran, says a lot right there, that these relatively middleweight powers are able to be leading proliferators of drones around the world. So I think there's a lot of things happening in the drone space that are that are harbingers of what's likely to come in future conflicts as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. Because a couple of years ago, I... I I wrote an article on Finland, and Finland was experimenting with creating civilian drone brigades mm-hmm. where it would hire civilians to basically guard sides of the border, or if in an invasion, they would be called up to offer ISR support to the, to the military. And this is like, I think, 2019 that they were doing this. So it's fascinating that that's you know, something that's not being done in Ukraine and, and to see that one of the, one of the first times actually that I came across your work was on Project Maven. I think you wrote an article mm-hmm. on that, on how the U.S. military was testing out how to process all this ISR data, mainly video, motion video to analyze and quickly identify. I think at the time it was pickups that ISIS was using in, uh, yeah. in, in Iraq. In your book for Battlegrounds, you talk about the four concepts, four key ingredients that are necessary for AI, and one of them is data. My question to you is, with data becoming increasingly important to train models and to improve them, and maybe this is a complex question, but how does the US and the West at large democracies compete with countries like China, where there are no such things as 
oh, democracy is not really a thing and privacy is neither. So how do you then catch up to, to that? Because they have more data, more accessible, and then their hands are not tied. That's a great question. Um, data is absolutely a key resource for machine learning. These new machine learning systems, all of this explosion we're seeing in AI and the deep learning revolution, tools like ChatGPT, they're trained on data. So having the data is essential. That's the starting point for accessing these really capable AI systems. And one of the things that the book explores is, what does this competition in data look like? So if AI is likely to bring something like another industrial revolution, we saw that during the industrial revolution, not only did countries rise and fall on the global stage, but also the key metrics of power changed. So coal and steel production became a key input of national power. Oil became a geostrategic resource. The country was willing to fight wars over. And this, you know, data is the new oil. That's a that's a common thing, you know, that people like to say. You know, it's it's not I mean, data's not oil. There are some areas where it's a helpful comparison, other areas where it's not. But this idea of like what are these key resource inputs to national power is one of the things that the book explores. Computing hardware is certainly one of them. Human talent is another, but data is really essential. I think that China's alleged advantage in data is overstated. That was one of the conclusions that I came to looking into the book. Um, and it changed my view on this. I think I, I originally thought, well, China has this big advantage because it's a bigger country, more people, more data, and the government doesn't have the constraints on data collection that democracies have. Now, both of those things are true. What I was surprised to find is I don't think it actually adds up to an advantage for China. And here's why. One is that national internet user base turns out to be the wrong thing to measure. What you actually care about is the user base of those companies. And companies are not constrained by their national user bases. So US companies have global reach. YouTube and Facebook both have over 2 billion global users each. WeChat, by comparison, there's only 1.2 billion global users. Because in fact, other than TikTok, US uh, Chinese companies rather have really struggled to gain a full sold outside China and have not been very successful. The other thing that was really quite interesting to me is that the data governance regimes in China are a little bit more complicated than you would sort of expect at first blush. So it's true that the Chinese Communist Party has no limits on its ability to collect data on its citizens. The kinds of regulations that we see in the US and Europe on things like facial recognition or other te uh, technology doesn't exist in China. In fact, the system doesn't even allow for that because the law inside China is not there to constrain the party. It's there to enforce the party's will. What's interesting is the data governance regimes in China are more complicated than they might look at first because while the Chinese Communist Party is not constrained in its ability to collect data on its citizens, that's actually not true for Chinese companies. And in fact, there's been quite a, bit, a lot of innovation inside China in consumer data privacy. And the Chinese government has passed laws restricting Chinese companies' ability to collect user data because the Chinese government cares about social governance and there have been a number of consumer data privacy scandals. But also the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want anyone else to have the same spying power that it has. And it's been very actively reeling in mm -hmm. Chinese tech companies. And so while it's true that for things like facial recognition, for example, there's just an unprecedented effort underway inside China to collect facial recognition data, to use it to surveil its citizens. But data, and here's where data is not like oil, data is not a fungible asset. And so more data on Chinese faces doesn't actually help you on non-Chinese faces, but it doesn't, it's not going to help you on European or African faces. Yep. And it's and it's certainly not going to help you train no. a better AI fighter pilot, for example. And so I think that China's data advantage is overstated. Again, in some key areas like facial recognition, it's real. China has a lead because of their deployment of half of the world's 1 billion surveillance cameras. But I don't think it leads to a data advantage overall. Yeah, you point to something there that I think where China maybe would struggle is how homogenous the test of the training data is because it's mainly Han yes. Chinese people that it's been trained on. So it wouldn't work in Uganda, for example. And I think that's one of the things that came out of, of multiple research papers that 
there's not enough African faces, for example, in, in data and how that is trained. I, I think that Chinese companies like Huawei are trying to export their technologies to countries in Africa and have access maybe to that data that is collected locally. I mean, I would guess they would, but it is an interesting, I think we wrote an article a couple of years ago, how Huawei was expanding that network. And that's, can I follow up on that for a second? Of course, of course. I think it's a really critical point, right? Because it, I think it, that's what really matters is the global reach of some of these companies. And that matters more than just the size of the internet population inside China, because it's not just about the size of data. The diversity is absolutely critical because data doesn't translate well. And these AI systems are not very good at handling the technical term is robustness to distributional shift, but basically handling shifts in the data set. So for example, moving from a Han Chinese face to an African face or a Caucasian face, facial recognition do very poorly on that. And that's been well documented. And that's where this, this, this point you're making, right? Which is that Huawei's made great inroads globally in terms of surveillance technology, as well as other companies, uh, YouTube, Cloudwalk and others that are Chinese is a great one because they are getting access to then some of this data via their global networks and connections. And in fact, at least 80 countries now have Chinese surveillance or policing technology. And so we've seen this sort of creeping spread of China's model of wow. techno-authoritarianism, of AI-enabled surveillance globally. That's crazy. 80 countries. I mean, I think people look at China, uh, if you're a state that, that wants control, and you look at China, you're like, hey, that, that's interesting. You know, that might work for us. So in that regard, I mean, effectiveness, you could, you could understand why they would, why they would get in bed. And maybe also the export controls for Chinese companies are not as strict as, right. as US export controls exactly. for these type of technologies. Right. At the end of each podcast or towards the end, I would like to always ask, there's a lot of young people that listen to this podcast and, and, and they engage with, with our content. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into this, become a researcher or, or even join the military, follow a similar career path as oh, you? Wow. I mean, I had kind of a wandering career path, right? Moving from, I started out mm-hmm. as a rifleman in the, you know, an infantry platoon in the Army's Ranger Regiment to, to now being an author to think tank and writing books about technology. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for things like follow your passions, try things out. I probably changed not just jobs, but careers four or five times before I landed on where I eventually ended up settling in the national security world and and continuing to to grow and develop. And I tried a lot of different things and learned a lot about what I was, what I enjoyed doing and what I didn't enjoy doing. And I think that's really valuable. Sometimes you never really know until you try something out. I think there's a lot to be said for particularly when you're young and you're not tied down with maybe a family and kids and a mortgage uh, that might come later in life, taking opportunities to mm-hmm. do things that might be harder later, right? Travel, go overseas, take advantage of that freedom to get those experiences and they'll pay dividends later. And I think sometimes people, it's not a new insight, but it's worth mentioning. I think sometimes people pay more attention than you should to things like status and credentials and should be paying more attention to investing in yourself. And what are the skill sets that you're going to gain? Think to yourself like, okay, if I'm going to go take this opportunity, whether it's an education or a fellowship or a job or you know going overseas to, to do something, what am I going to learn? How am I going to come out of this different? And what skills am I going to gain? Because in some ways you you're gaining all of these different professional skills that then over time, you know, they'll stick with you and you're, uh, they tend to pay compounding dividends on the long run. Thank you for that. I, I want to ask you a, a follow-up question to that, more towards your, your expertise and your research. What do you think is important in the job market of tomorrow to prepare for today, where things like ChatGPT and these type of technologies are playing more of a role. Well, the thing that struck me about these generative AI systems that have really just exploded on the scene in the last year, both text 
generation, yeah. like ChatGPT, and then these AI generative tools is like that are generating AI generated art, is how much there's been this immediate sort of moral panic and backlash against using them. And so, you know, people saying, oh, it's wrong to use ChatGPT to generate text. You know, it's wrong for students to be using it, writing essays, and they're cheating, or artists saying this is wrong, it's stealing people's art. And there are some, I think, important societal things to think about. Like, there are interesting questions with AR generators about whether it's allowable under copyright law, at least in the US, different countries have different laws here, but in the US, whether it's allowable under current copyright law to train an AI model on copyrighted images. And that's an open legal question, and and we're going to have to iron that out. But this broader idea that you know we shouldn't be using AI tools is, I would say, from a professional development standpoint, not a way to say make yourself marketable in the long run. These tools are coming; they're coming for everyone. They're gonna they're gonna absolutely change our jobs. Text generation will radically transform writing itself. Now that's going to take a while to happen. Because in some cases, there are generational changes here. But if you look at other tools like word processors and spell check and, you know, for math calculators, there were the same kinds of concerns about using these. And the answer is, well, some of the things that we used to test people on you know, being able to memorize multiplication tables and stuff, well, then we have calculators. And so that's not the math skill that we actually care about. Now we care about mathematical reasoning and being able to understand mathematical concepts and take a real world problem and translate it into, you know, something that you can put into a calculator. Like that's the math skill that people need to know. And so figuring out how to use these tools effectively, I think is going to be vitally important. And, you know, if you're a professional who's saying, well, I'm just not going to use this, I think you're probably putting yourself at a disadvantage. Now, as a practical matter, in the near term, because there's such controversy about it, you know, I think people need to be cautious about how they're using it actually in practice, right? So if you're working somewhere, I mean, I work at a think tank, if you're working somewhere where writing is part of your profession and, you know, you turn in something using chat GPT, A, you're still responsible for that text. So if it's wrong or full of a bunch of errors or make stuff up, like that's, you know, your name's on it. And also like people may not find that acceptable, right? If you're a reporter, if you're a researcher, they may not be acceptable, but I would say leaning into experimenting with figuring out what it can do and what it can't is going to be really important in the long run. And you want to try to better understand it because these social norms are going to change over time. And we want to be able to, if you want to be successful, find the ways to harness some of this technology and use it to your advantage. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. I think you should experiment with it. I mean, especially if it's yeah. free. And I've spoken to people you would say on the surface would be largely against it, but then I hear like the use cases they they've used it for and, and, and how they were able to do their jobs much quicker and, and like how to especially how to turn rough data mm-hmm. into structured data. I think these models are really good for. And as I mentioned to you a little bit earlier, we use it to edit this podcast. Right. So so there are there are like good ways of, of using it. I wanted to ask you, outside of your fantastic new book for Battlegrounds, do you have any cultural recommendations? What are you watching and what are you reading and are you listening to any podcast or I I am embarrassed this. I'm an incredibly uncultured person. I work a lot. <laughs> and so the things that I the things that I consume are almost invariably Work related, right? Like I was hopeful that you were going to say, like, well, what things should I read about AI? And I could give you a bunch of stuff and podcasts and other things, but um, I'm, I'm, you know, you you can't do that too, obviously. I did, I did stay on top of Game of Thrones when it came out, although that's many, many years ago. I just started like The Last of Us, but I'm like an episode. I'm like behind the curve on on a lot of popular cultural things, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's pretty good, The Last of Us. But coming back to what you said. If somebody's interested in, in AI, in, in machine learning, maybe not from a scientific perspective, but to understand it a little bit better outside of your, your great books, Army of None and, and uh, Full Battlegrounds, what can you recommend? I think it's really important for any technology area, whether it's like cybersecurity or AI, to be able to get into the technology and understand it. 
Because it's, I, you know, I am in so many conversations with people where it's very surface level and you can tell that people are talking about the idea of AI, but not the technology itself. And you hear people talk about it and I'm like, that's not, that's not how it works. That's not real. Like, it's just, you're talking about something else, not what people are actually doing in labs. So I'd say it's really important to dig into the tech, couple resources for doing so. One, there's an AI research group that studies trends in AI called Epoch. It's spelled like EPIC, E-P-O-C-H. They do amazing work looking at trends in data and computing power and algorithmic progress, progress, really valuable sort of quantitative analysis. It's great for helping to understand where this is going. If you want to dig deep into kind of the cutting edge of AI technology, I would look at the AI research group Anthropic. It's an AI startup spun out of OpenAI. They're doing tremendous work in large language models. They publish their research papers on their website to try to understand what's going on. If you're looking at something like ChatGPT, you're like, this is weird. What is going on? That's you. I mean, the popular media stuff is fine, but if you want to get below the surface and, and look at what's actually happening, I would say go to Anthropic's website and look at their sources. And then there's just some absolutely great emails that you could send them for, like in many fields, Jack Clark's email newsletter, Import AI, is fabulous. It's a great roll-up of what's going on in the world of AI. And it's a great starting point. But I would encourage readers to also dig deeper on these papers. Go to th- The great thing about the AI research community is that almost all of the papers are open access. They're published online, on archives, mm-hmm. um, a publicly available website where there's no paywall. They're not behind paywalled scientific journals. And so go to the technical papers, read them. You know, if you're a policy person and you don't understand the math, that's fine. You can skip the equations, but read the abstract and the introductions and the discussion and um, start wading into the deep end of the pool because, you know, understanding the technical aspects are really critically important. And the technology is moving forward uh, so quickly and it's going to have transformative effects on society. I think the more people that can understand where this is taking us and help us prepare all the better. Paul, thank you so much. I uh, I really enjoyed it. And, and this one was also, I definitely think, because we are a very security-minded audience, so I think they, would, they will listen to this and, and I think it, they will take a lot of good things from it. But for me, it was really like an opportunity to speak to you and talk about your fantastic work and, and everything you've been doing. Full Battlegrounds is available everywhere, right? It's right. It's out. Four Battlegrounds is out. It's in stores. It's available in physical bookstores and online in ebook format. So um, I'll promise you guys, we are not sponsored yeah. by you. So this is not, <laughs> if they might take that. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time and, and your insight. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Have a good one. And for everybody listening, thank you guys. You made it this far. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please give us ratings whatever we deserve and i'll speak to you guys next week thank you thank you